some people don't like mental toughness. I think because that's a branding thing too. And I love it because every coach in America has some idea what mental toughness is, but you ask all of them, they have a different definition. Okay, so here's my definition. It's the ability and willingness to use a specific set of mental and emotional skills to execute tasks at the upper range of your potential over time. So I think optimal performance, right? And mental toughness is really the bridge between this continuum of psychology. Psychology was studied looking at pathology first, right? And looking at people what made people sick and ill, moving into prevention to prevent people from sliding into getting sick. But in the last 50 years, performance psychology, the research has caught up and really advanced it to kicking ass between your ears. And so we all are gonna experience some sort of pathology, depression, anxiety, but the idea is how do I continue to move the needle more to the right? And I think mental toughness is the bridge between prevention and performance. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Today, we are joined by Andy Rise. Andy is a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel who graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point. Andy went on to serve for over 20 years as a soldier in a variety of austere missions, highlighted by three combat deployments, including strategic missions on four continents and five years in two elite Special Forces units. Andy later went on to serve as the mental performance coach for the 75th Ranger Regiment and has served as a consultant for the Seattle Mariners, Pittsburgh Pirates, and currently the Colorado Rockies. He's also worked with a number of NFL teams and has co-authored a best-selling book. He currently serves as the Outreach Program Coordinator and Instructor with Texas A&M's Coaching Academy. In this episode, Andy details the difference between resiliency and mental toughness, and he gives us practical tips on how to overcome fear. Andy also discusses the myth of commander's calm, and paints a very clear picture of what high performance looks like between the ears. This episode is full of gems, and I guarantee you'll want to listen to it multiple times. If you find today's podcast valuable, please subscribe and share it with a friend, and leave us a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. And now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Andy, glad to have you on today, my friend. Howdy. Howdy. Eric, uh, happy Patriot Day. Glad to be here, man. Likewise, my man. So, Andy, how did you go from being a joint terminal attack controller for special forces to a mental performance coach working with professional sports teams? That's a, that's a change there. How much time we got? How, how much time we got? <laughs> yeah, so I'll try to hit the highlights, the wave tops. So, uh, I mean, first of all, thanks for the opportunity to be on, Eric. Um, Absolutely. You know, and, and thanks for everybody's tuning in. My journey really in, in, in high performance really began playing for Army football. And uh, so I, I had the opportunity uh, to go to West Point, which is a prep school for a year, kind of like your previous guests, uh, Clint Bruce, played for that other team down in Annapolis <laughs> and beat them and beat Navy. And, there you uh, go. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you know, it's, it's well, the tale is told very well from the outside perspective about that 47 month crucible experience that is any service academy. My experience is no different. It forged who I am as a human being, as a leader. Man, I got my ass kicked every single day training just uh, on the football field. And I quickly found out that, so I was a fullback, blunt instrument of pain, definitely part of who I am. 
And uh, I, I switched positions my sophomore year. And if it wasn't VUCA enough, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, which will come up later, <laughs> then you know it, it certainly was then. And I, I, you know, the one thing that I found, I know you appreciate this, Eric, is that if everything else was equal physically, you're all the best for where you come from, from a national pool. You're all the best. You have really good technical skills. You have really good tactical skills. The one thing that was getting in my way was my mental game. I could not get out of my own way. I was paralyzed by analysis. I lacked confidence. Probably from an early age, it started to manifest itself. And so by the time, you know, and I was so stressed down on in the, uh, in the cadet area that I, I was bringing that baggage up to the football field. And so my coach referred me to a unique center called the West Point Center for Enhanced Performance. It's been around since 1989. They import the best practices of sport and performance psychology to help cadet athletes uh, perform at a high level in the classroom. And uh, obviously, academically and militarily to become leaders of character. And so I started doing this one on one work, you know, sitting in an egg chair, which it's famous for, you know, looking like something by Morecambe Nindy doing, you know. Uh, <laughs> I love those, by so, the way. Man, I want to get one. I'm at you and I, we're going to get, we're going to get a custom egg chairs, man. That's our next A&M business egg venture. chairs. That AM egg chairs, man. Yeah. That's right. And so that's what it's known for because everybody goes through when they go through cadet basic training. You say SEP, they say egg chair. So I, it just became part of who I, I, I am. What I, and then, you know, I, then obviously, you know, I, I got commissioned in, in June of 2011. 9-11 happened. So I've literally been my whole career at war. And then obviously things changed. You know, today's Patriot Day. And just your readiness and what you did to pair in the offseason to go to the fight really came out of Paramount. And what I found was that, hey, the Army is really good at training physically, training technically, technically, but we were not good at training Mentally, and when I was a platoon leader in combat at 24 years old, leading 30 men and women, um, you know, as a as a field artillery platoon leader, it was the six inches between your ears that really carried the day in the battlefield, not anything else. When it comes to your training, and and that really hit home to me, and so I relied heavily on my training that I got as a football player, and did a lot of self study. And so during my second deployment, I got the opportunity to go back and teach at West Point, back in the Center for Enhanced Performance. The captain that I worked with was now the director. Uh, he remembered me. He had got his PhD. His name's Carl Olson. Shout out to Carl. He's at, uh, he's at Penn State University now. And then uh, Dr. Doug Chadwick, who I now work with the Rockies, uh, you know, is the one who reached out to me and brought me back in. Went without a master's because uh, usually if you go teach in an academy, you go to get your master's ahead of time and then you show up, but you owe time. Right. At the time, I was, getting, I was getting out of the Army. So I didn't know if I wanted to invest that amount of time. But when I showed up, I, you know, I had to get my, I had to go through a three-week certification, and um, it man, the lights just turned on, and I had these aha moments. I'm sure you appreciate that, Eric. It's like mm. you're just like this is this is what I want to do the rest of my life. Like not only where has this been, but this is what I want to do the rest of my life. I really had that aha moment and fell in love with the field. I was doing, so I did a little bit on the academy. Probably about ten percent of my time was at the academy. I worked with the football team. We went to a bowl game that year, first time in 20 years. We went with the baseball team. We they won the Patriot. They went the Patriot League tournament for the first time in a decade. But most of what I was doing was exporting the services for outreach for the Army Center for Enhanced Performance. So what had happened is guys like me who were graduating were finding the same thing, and they were demanding the services from the set to go back into the Army. So we created the Army Center for Enhanced Performance. And there were six sites. The first one was at Fort Bragg, working with Special Forces soldiers, which is relevant because. At the time, the Army was really dealing with a wicked, wicked problem with suicides. 2009, we had more deaths due to suicide, which is Suicide Prevention Month, uh, ironically, right now in the, 
and uh, across the world. Uh, and it's a big deal, still is a big problem. But we had lots more soldiers at home uh, than we did in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. And so, you know, naturally a lot of our, our national leaders were poking the military in the chest saying, what are you doing about it? So then the General uh, George Casey, who was the Army Chief of Staff at the time, formed a task force of all the best and brightest minds in academia and the military to come together. And so naturally they sent my dumb ass down to the University of Pennsylvania, you know, as this young captain with no master's degree to deal with all these heavy hitting PhDs and, and senior military officers. And, and I was like, what the hell am I doing here? You know, and, but what I found was, is that I got to see the table because I was representing the first line, uh, the first line supervisor, the tactic level leader, mm. having just come from combat myself doing a very difficult mission. So that, that was my mantle. And uh, I ended up becoming the first resilience trainer in the army help kind of usher in the comprehensive soldier fitness program. And then the army went in a direction to where they were doing the kind of the industrial model of resilience training that dealt more with coping. I know we're going to talk about resilience, but what I was more interested in is that is developing the tactical athlete from a human performance perspective, a multidisciplinary integrated approach. And that's what special operations been doing. And then that's relevant because that's how I ended up going to work with special forces is that, but my vehicle, mind you, there's no sports psychologists in the army. There just, it doesn't exist. So I had to track on, uh, stay on my track to become a field artillery officer and continue serving and taking care of my family, obviously, as I wanted to do that. But at the same time, I wanted, I needed to moonlight and do the work, you know? And so I, you know, at the time they had, they had, you know, strength and conditioning coaches, they had sports physiologists, they had PTs, ATs, they this had no all part of the POTUS, right? Yeah. All part of POTUS. SOCOM's preservation of the force and family initiative. Right. Thor 3, another acronym we won't get into, but the idea, whole idea was surrounding the tactical athlete to optimize their performance, recovery, rehabilitation, and that integrated model that you and I know too well that we struggle with all across the board. But yeah, so that's what I, that's what I did. And so my primary job was being a fire support officer, which to answer your question, one part was uh, on the training side and during the off season was to be a party planner bring all these assets together that, you know, think about howitzers, helicopters, airplanes, you know, think about big bombs going a long distance to support Green Berets on the ground. I was the orchestrator of that. Second part was, you know, helping putting warheads on foreheads in combat. The third part was being a targeting officer, which is all about influencing behavior change against the enemy, you know, through lethal and non-lethal means. So that's what I did. But I was, meanwhile, I'm moonlighting as this applied sport performance coach, right? And so it's like, you know, so that's how the, how those two worlds ended up coming together. And I spent five years with two special forces group. Uh, and I just, I just love that community and that culture. Uh, they're definitely part of my tribe. That is amazing. It, it makes sense. It's just whenever you're the first or you're a group of the first, you're having to break the mold. And yeah. I've been a part of that in my own way, not in the military, but was there any scar tissue from that? From what, what specifically? Well, I mean, you said there weren't sports psychologists, but here your moonlighting is this. Was there any resistance to having somebody that would be doing this type of stuff at all? Did you find that within your cadre? For sure. I mean, within other, you know, here, here's the deal. I mean, in the military, there's really only one path to success, Right. And so I think um, from other senior leaders who are in my branch, my career field, they looked down on me because I was this green bug and because I was carving this unique path. And I don't know how many times I, when I was doing this unconventional path, I had someone say, you're, you're ruining your career. And to me, I had to follow my purpose and, uh, you know, and then make that my passion, right? And I didn't, didn't follow my passion. My purpose is what drove my passion, do, do what I needed to do to stay relevant in the field. But at the same time, 
you know, still achieve what is success in the army, which is retiring as a lieutenant colonel. And that was my, you know, I never wanted to be a, a field artillery battalion commander, which is kind of a, you know, you, you command a unit that goes to war. Um, and so uh, that's, you know, 500 to 700 man people. I never wanted to do that. I always wanted to coach, teach, and mentor. And that's relevant to what I'm doing today because I'm really, that's my life 2.0 mission is really all about the art and science of coaching, specifically the transferability of mental and emotional skills for coaches to help make them and their teams better at what they do. Yeah, because right now you're in a new position with Texas A&M with their new coaching academy as the outreach program coordinator and instructor. So we're in version yes, 2.0 yeah. of Andy Rise. Uh, yeah, yeah, you got it, man. Yeah. This is, this is pretty cool. I want to circle back to that later, but yeah. I want to hit on some really key things that you have a very specific expertise in. And yeah. I think in COVID right now, stress is abounding. You know, there's no, there's no lack sure. or abundance of stress, right? right? What is resilience and how do you define that? And then how do you develop resilience? Yeah, for sure. That's a great question. So I, I define re- resilience and, I'll, and I'll, I'll fall back on academic de- uh, definition, which comes from, you know, positive psychology, great minds like uh, Beck and Seligman, and then even Karen Rivich, who was one of my mentors, shout out to Karen, um, is the ability and willingness to be able to bounce back from adversity, right? And they use the tennis ball analogy, right? You know, so the idea, hey, is that, hey, whenever you hit adversity, you hit stress, negative or, or positive stress. So uh, distress or you stress in this case um, is that hey you you bounce back right and so I I equate I equate it to like playing defense so using a football analogy you know being resilient is the idea about playing championship defense right and so I think that's what what goes into that is a few things right and so you know this comes from the idea about what Seligman talked about as far as learned optimism and he studied hey what made people depressed or find be hopeless um, and find despair and that led to other pathology or pathological signs and symptoms and what made people more resilient. And the idea was learned optimism. And what that goes into that is first and foremost, what I call a mental filter, right? Is that, and that's the idea about what's called selective perception. Mm. And so that's how you choose to see what happens and what does not happen to you, right? I mean, so we all have this lens in terms of how we see ourselves and how we see the world, right? It's like a two-way mirror. And so a selective perception is super important because when things that are good, bad, or indifferent happen to you, you know, you have a choice in the matter as far as what happens to you. And so you know, again, and it this in Carol Dweck's growth mindset plays into that lens, right? You know, do I see things as a threat or as an opportunity, right? So if I lose my job right now and I'm furloughed because of COVID and my company's cutting back, how do I choose to see that adverse event that happens? Do I see that as the threat to my livelihood? And is it one time, one thing? So in other words, you know, is this, is this an indictment on who I am and my character and my, me as a person? Did I, did I do a bad job? Was it because, you know, um, I was a bad person? Because, you know, and does this mean that, you know, I'm, I, I have no hope of finding another job? So that would be more permanent and pervasive versus is this a one-time one thing, right? So instead of seeing, you know, me losing my job as a pervasively negative thing, how do I see this as an opportunity for me to maybe then go back and work on something about myself and seek a new opportunity when the time comes? You said learned optimism. I think that's such a cool, I've never heard that before. So this is something that if you learn a skill set, and you're aware of what's going on, you could actually apply this mindset when adversity comes. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's definitely learned behavior. I mean, some of these traits are innate, right? I mean, let's say that there's, we have a genetic disposition, right? You know, we, we all, it goes back millions of years. And so I think that, um, yeah, I'm reading actually a really interesting book that talks about called Sapiens. 
And it talks about our, you know, our, our, how we've evolved as human beings as a species, and we continue to evolve, right? But a lot of you know, our genetic code determines what our behaviors are. I mean, and let's say that's 20 to 30%, depending on where you are. Well, the idea is that, hey, that's, that's not, that cast is not set. You're not automated, right? You have an agency or what is a choice in terms of what happens to you based on how you act and react. So there's some things I don't control that are situational, that are genetic. But a lot of this equation is within your control, you know, or at the best in your influence. So I can't turn my, my heart on and off, but I can certainly help influence my heart rate variability and my heart rate, right? As you know, I can't stop the fact that I, I think all the time, but I can control how I think, right? And then how I act and react. And I think that is a big thing that, that, that agency and that, that locus of control is a big thing that I think, you know, is missed on a lot of people. Yeah, neuroscience is proving this. Neuroplasticity. You know, we're very plastic 100%. at early ages, but it doesn't end. Like if you understand the process of neuroplasticity, you can change the way that you respond to your environment. You can learn. I mean, there's, I love right. Andrew Huberman's stuff that he puts out because he, he takes some very complex things and makes them practical. I love that. Now, there's a difference between resilience and mental toughness. Define, I think you've said it before that mental toughness is a subset of resilience. Could you kind of go into that for us? Yeah, for sure. Just just the inverse of that. So like, you oh. know, the umbrella term. Yeah, yeah my, my, my definition of mental toughness. And the reason, I, and some people don't like mental toughness, and I think because that's a branding thing too, but this definition comes from Jim Lair and Peter Clow, right? And these are some of the, the seminal authors and research behind this stuff too. So there's a lot of efficacy. There's a lot of teeth and tail behind this definition, and but more importantly, the practical application. And uh, and this is how I came into sports psychology, this idea of mental toughness. And I love it because every coach in America has some idea what mental toughness is, but you ask all of them, they all have a different definition. So here's my, cool. here's my definition that I'll do an academic then a, a practical app version of that. Okay, so it's the ability and willingness to use a specific set of mental and emotional skills to execute tasks at the upper range of your potential over time, right? Okay, so what that boils down to is, hey, do I, an optimal performance to code that is getting the most out of what you got, you know, in order to be at your best more often, right? Okay, and so let's take the zone out of it, right? Because that's that's that, that's been debunked. The the zone is a myth. That is a little bit really a myth. Sorry, thank Stephen you for Kotler. saying that. Yeah. Appreciate you thank doing you. that one. Sorry, Stephen Kotler. Yeah, the zone is the zone is bullshit. Okay, because <laughs> because life is VUCA, man, and uh, you know, and you, it's guess what? There is right now in COVID. You know, how many how many of us feel like we're in the zone, right? We're are you surviving, thriving? you know, or coping. Most of us are coping, right? And so if I got 70% when I get up in any given day of my capacity, if I could become capable and get 60 out of that 70%, man, that's a win. That's yes. crushing it, right? So I think that's why I talk about optimal performance, right? And mental toughness is really the bridge between this continuum of psychology. It's important for users to understand. And so psychology was studied looking at pathology first, right? And looking at people and made people sick and ill and then it moved into, in the 1960s and 70s, moved into prevention to move people from, to prevent people from sliding into getting sick and ill. But in the last 50 years, performance psychology, the research has caught up and really advanced it to kicking ass between your ears, right? But really, as an applied practitioner, what I care about is uh, human beings, we, we span that spectrum in ups, peaks and valleys throughout the course of our life. And so... We all are going to experience some sort of pathology, depression, anxiety, and a lot of us are experiencing that right now. But the idea is that how do I how do I continue to move the needle 
more to the right. And I think mental toughness is the bridge between prevention and performance, right? And resilience and grit are subsets, right? It's playing defense. But if you're talking mental toughness, now I'm playing offense. I'm scoring points mentally and emotionally while I'm playing defense. Grit is kind of the special teams that happens in between there, right? Dude, that is fly. (laughs) Kicking ass between your ears. I love it. I've never heard that said before either. Yeah. So is mental toughness task specific or can you just be tough to everything all the time? Like, I just got to say something. There's this former Navy SEAL who is mm-hmm. on Instagram and social media, just like yep. swearing all the time and calling people out. <laughs> and I'm and like, he, Another he guy. Made, yeah. Like this morning, like he uses some words that I'm just like, you know, it's not really cool, but he makes it sound like if you, anyways, I'm going to let you answer the question, but can you be tough to everything or is it task specific and you have to develop things? Yeah, it's very task specific, Eric. You're spot on, man. I mean, it's a skill. I mean, it's a set of skills actually, you know, and, uh, and I think it's more about the process than it is about the product at the end of the day and achievement. Right. You know, so I think that at any given time, you need vary in terms of your, your mental toughness, but to say that it's a state and that you're going to be at this high watermark all the time is not the reality of the situation. Right. <laughs> it, it just not, it's just not reality. Right. Because we're human beings, we're fallible. And, and the great example that I have is like, hey, when you have somebody that dies in your life, it's kind of it's heavy, right? You know, it's, so it's like, you're going to experience a whole range of emotions, right? You know, and to be mentally tough towards mourning and coping with the loss of a loved one is, uh, you know, it's, it's all relative to the experience, right? You know, so I think it's very task specific. And I think that you have to be deliberate and intentional about how you use those skills and apply them through a deliberate process, through education, application, assessment, and that continual cycle within those, uh, those little micro loops to, to develop the habits that will make it more likely that you are going to be more mentally tough in a given task, like swinging at a fastball or you know, when you're down on the couch or what happens to you when you're a pitcher and you, know, you, you give up uh, you know, a grand slam and you blow the save. Performance is, is uh, relative and, and you're going to see that the toggle goes up and down uh, over time. And I think a lot of coaches have this screwed up. And I think part of it is because, and I'm so glad A&M now has a school for this, is they're just untrained in this area. And so what do we do? It's We do what was done to us. We look at who's winning. And then I heard it said, oh, what's his name? He founded Oak Tree Capital. And he said, never evaluate the quality of a decision by the outcome of the decision. Mm. So a lot of times in in coaching, we look at like, who's won? And then you go, well, I'm just going to do what they do. And I've been at places where we succeeded despite ourselves. And when it comes to mental toughness, you know, you're like, well, what we did created toughness. Or was it the fact that you had tons of talent with people that had grown up in traumatic situations and were already tough when you got them? True. What you needed to do was develop Mm -hmm. task-specific mental toughness. I'll tell you something about Jimbo Fisher, because I coached for him at Florida State, bringing it Mm -hmm. back to you. He was all about two-minute drill. Situational football, that's a Nick Saban, Bill Pelichick, Bill Parcells thing. Yeah, And on Thursdays, we had – this is a Florida State. We had the number one defense in America. And our offense wasn't too shabby either. But mm-hmm. on 
Thursdays, it was ones versus ones. He called it fastball. And it was like, at the end of practice, it's two minutes and we got to, the offense has got to move it. Well, the year that we won the ACC championship, like our offense just couldn't get the ball off. Like we had four, I think four first round draft picks at the defensive end position alone. But that offense learned how to handle that situation. And I'll never forget we're at Virginia Tech on a Thursday night. Mm -hmm. Lane Stadium where we're talking to Doug Walker. In Lane. In Lane, yeah. And uh, it's Thursday night. environment. It's cold. And it's less than two minutes. It was the exact scenario we've been training. And I'm standing right next to EJ Manuel. And he goes, guys, this is Thursday practice. Let's go. And it wasn't like this, like, jumping up and down and acting like a fool. And they walk out there and they just march that ball right down the field and won the game. Yeah. And it was because to me, they were inoculated to that stress. Love it. Glad you brought that up, man. What do you think about uh, stress inoculation? I'm huge on it. I mean, I think that is really, you know, key to developing, you know, mental, uh, physical and, and mental, emotional, physical, social toughness. I think, I think it's, uh, Across the human dimension, I think that's key. But from the mental and emotional standpoint, I think you know, looking at that that stress and recovery piece, the work, the work recovery piece, and then dialing it up and practice, making practice harder so the game is easier. But I think it's you know, again, going back to the York, York Dotson law. Okay, where let's, let's let's break it down here. You know, talking about hey, uh, you know, activation level on the x axis. We're talking about performance level on the y axis. We all have this individual zone of optimal performance to win. We get activated to a certain level of stress to a certain point where our performance goes up. And then at a certain point, there's a tipping point into where you know we start to see diminishing returns of our performance, right? What's important to understand is that everyone's eyes off, individual zone optimal function is different, right? And so how do I then create the individual blueprint, use your term, to where it's, it's shared. It's shared across an offensive or defensive unit in this case right here too. So I think it's just to understand what the dialing up and dialing down process looks like as far as adding stressors and doing things and, and getting people out of their comfort zone and, and variability is key too. And you know this physically, right? Same thing can happen mentally. So what do you do to change the variables to add stressor? You reduce time. You add variability You add, or add more variables to the equation, right? You throw sudden changes in there. You make ambiguous situations. Again, the VUCA equation. If I just use that VUCA acronym, and I find different things that I can hey, give do. Give us the VUCA acronym again. Volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, right? And that describes modern warfare, but that's life, especially right now. And you could even say, even when it, within the closed loop task of a football game, there is certain VUCA aspects that go into that as well, too. So if I just use, if I just take a variable within that framework and I adjust it, I now dial up the level of stress, okay? And then I allow that to be able to recover because that's the key because... If I have too much stress, too much all the time too, it's it, you're 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 losing. There's diminishing returns. I've got to have recovery, and I've got to have those even sine waves of work and recovery to when the game time is on. If practice was is technically harder, the game is easier because I've now trained myself to trust myself through that process. So now, if I brought skill in, I can just let it out when the game time comes. Theoretically, right? Yeah, this is so good, and. There's a lot of places in our life that we can apply this, not just in sports. Sure. But like, I'm a combat athlete. Like, I, we do jujitsu. Yeah. And uh, it's the ultimate thinking person's game. Have you ever done jujitsu before? Well, you know, jujitsu is brought into modern army combatives. Oh, and, that's and right. I, the Gracie combatives. 
Yeah, and yeah, and I actually yeah. just did an article on mental skills training woven into combatives training. So yeah, please go ahead. I want to hear about it though. Yeah, and it's a uh, a friend of mine told me this is a coach in Atlanta, very successful coach, and he said this was the ultimate thinking man's game. And I just gotten started, and it's been about two years now. My wife's in it three and a half years. It's weird because the more you learn, the less you know. But sure. you're, it's the ultimate anticipation and feel. And in the yeah. most volatile situation, when somebody can physically harm you, you're having to calm yourself, access yeah. parts of your brain to think. And it's That's really right. cool. I, I, I train with this guy who's a former direct action sniper. He's six seven. Yeah. This is not a joke. Like 250 to 260 pounds, long beard, tatted up, great dude. <laughs> and I call I call him the the bearded warrior, and nice. uh, like he is a he's a, and he's a belt higher than me, okay. and like he can make my life miserable. And if he gets into the mount, which is where basically he's on top of me, yeah, he would uh, spread and then rear his belly into me to the point where I wanted to throw up. And some people will tap just because of the pain. Yeah, and so I started like, okay, this is an uncertain situation. It's very volatile. And so I was learning, I started implementing some things into my own practice. Like when this happens, what am I going to do to regain control? Yeah. It's actually something I picked up with the 75th Ranger Regiment, one of their cognitive yeah. psychs. Right. I asked her, right. I said, uh, when in pain, what do you teach your guys to do? And she says, it was just a mindfulness tactic. She said, breathe through your nose and feel the mm -hmm. air literally passing the hairs in your nose in and out and I'll do yeah. two or three breaths and all of a sudden I have control again and I can access mm -hmm. my brain. Yeah, sure. Sure. And so what are some tactics that you give people like when things hit the fan to like regain their attention? Well, I mean, the breath is, the breath is huge. It's your safety valve. A friend of mine, Janelle McCauley calls it your oxygen mask, right? But you look at, you know, and I recommend the book breathe for anybody who's out there. It's a great read. Um, really gets down into the science and background behind breathing and various techniques. Breathing techniques is definitely a big part of my practice, but I think it's not, there isn't just one type, right? You know, you could use breathing for all, for different things to get your physiology up and, you know, and you get to get that arousal and activation level up. It also can help you, you know, get focused and centered um, and help you direct your attention. And it can also help you relax and go into recover. You know, and so there's a whole bunch of different breathing techniques that, that are out there. I'm a big fan of that, especially the nasal breathing, and mainly because uh, it also has the, the the nose has a direct connect connection to the brain, obviously. And so, in terms of being able to trigger trigger that relaxation response, especially to be able to reduce your activation level and be able to be able to maybe widen your focus, you know, or in this narrow this focus is your, your case, or shift my focus to another target. You can't go wrong with that as well, too. And again, it's one of those things. What I love about the breath is that it's it's always available to you. You always have it 24-7, even when you sleep. And it's something that can take and help take the intangible skills that are related to uh, the mental and emotional part of your game and make them tangible, right? So that's what I like about the breath. Hmm. So when you talk about fear, which is obviously a part of this, mm -hmm. I've heard you use the frame commander's calm. Yeah, 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 yeah. What, yeah. What, what do you what do you believe about commander's calm? You know, I, I'm torn about it. You know, part of me is um, what does it I'm mean? All, first of all, what what? Well, in, well, so first of all, commander's calm is kind of one of those things. This idea that um, being cool, calm, and collected under pressure, right? 
Uh, my issue with it, I guess, is this mythical image that it's the Hollywood version of Ike in his jacket and he's, you know, his hands on his hips and he just, he just calmly wrote out the plans for D-Day and gave it to Monty and then, <laughs> and, it was, and then Hal Moore during the Battle, Battle of Yadrang Valley, shout out to his son, David, who's a great, good friend of mine, also retired colonel in the army, is that they're, they're just like these flatliners, right? And the reality reflects something different, you know? And, I, and again, it goes to task and moment specific performance and how and composure in the moment, right? But when you look at these leaders and these people we idolize, you know, whether it's Ike, it's Patton, it's Coach Ashevsky, it's uh, Tony Dungy, it's Pete Carroll, John Wooden, whatever, even business, great business leaders like Lee Iacocca or Steve Jobs is just revered, you know, in the tech world, right? You know, he's this God that they're just these flatlanders and they've got ice in their veins 24-7. And the reality is something completely different, right? I love Ike because he was an army fullback and I just, I love, I've read a lot about him and what really surprised me that challenged my assumption and also learning about General Halmore through his son was that, man, these guys were anything but ice water in your veins all the time, right? They're fiery dudes. A lot of people don't know that Eisenhower had a temper problem his entire life. But here's the, here's the thing. The reason why Eisenhower was so, so respected is that he found ways to, be, to gain self-awareness that he had a problem and he had found ways to self-regulate himself. So when he, and then he understood the situation, the operating environment, who was there socially, and he knew how to influence people within that, right? So he was constantly having this war going on in between his ears, but he developed these tactics and techniques, you know, through his own self-study and his own self-mastery process where he was aware he could regulate himself. Did he make mistakes? Hell yeah, he did. When he was a young guy, did he get fired up and, and go off on people? Yeah, he sure as hell did. But this idea that, hey, you know, that you could, you, you could be a passionate, fire person, then you somehow got to turn into this person like Tony Dungy. Tony Dungy is Tony Dungy. You know, that's his personality. You got to be you. But, the, but the, the, the point is, is that in the moment under pressure, being able to stay composed is the skill. And that's, you know, and it's not one of the things that's all the time. It's not, it's not permanent pervasive. It's very task specific. It's important for leaders to understand that, you know, first of all, stop being so damn hard on yourself. <laughs> second, 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 you're going to screw stuff up and you're going to lose your temper and you're, or you're not going to, you may, or you may not rise to the occasion emotionally, right? Because that's the other, the other challenge of people who have a tendency to be, you know, hey, hey, I may be, I, I may be the duck on the pond all the time, right? But sometimes people, when you're leading them, need you to, to be able to show a level of empathy and emotional intelligence that shows that you give a shit about them, especially mm-hmm. in times of crisis, right? So there's the opposite effect that happens. And so, Hal Moore used to say that his command post was, was under his helmet. And I firmly believe that's the case. And I think that if you want to develop composure and commander's calm as a leader and as a coach, is that you have to practice that every single day with your self-awareness, self-regulation. And the good news is there's a set of skills that you can employ to do that. And we just mm. talked about one of them. Yeah. The awareness of the situations that trigger you also, I think, I, I know there's certain times when like, I know that my blood will boil. And I will think about it before I get there and like, okay, when this happens, this is what you're going to do. Cause right. I do not react out of your emotions. Yeah. Cause if you do like you, you all of a sudden your amygdala gets involved and you're just hijacked. You're out the window. hundred percent. You lose it. Your emotions now have controlled you versus you control your emotions. And I think that that is key, you know, but what actually is happening, there's a matter of influence that's going on because there's this interaction that's happening in a micro loop, you know, the way you think affects how you feel, which affects your physiology, which affects your behavior. And that thought performance interaction is constantly going on. And that process can work for you 
I, I use, I, I steal the term from uh, Jim Collins, you know, I call that the flywheel effect. Yeah. You know, if you, if you're using that, if you're, you're finding, you're looping that in your favor, that's called psychological momentum, by the way. And that can influence others, you know, in a collective unit. But at the same time, you can get caught in that doom loop spiral to where, you know, you're just circling the drain and you're going down the toilet. But the good news, you got to understand within that loop what you can control. So uh, the point of entry is how you think to me. And then it's also how you act and react, you know, but understanding the awareness of those triggers, like you said, like to me, my face gets red. I, I show my emotions, right? You know, so my heart rate, my, my breathing raises into my chest. My face gets red. I clench my jaw. And when those triggers start to happen, hey, you know, I have to do something. I got to walk away. I got to breathe, walk away, remove myself, and then come back, you know? And, and that skill is super important for everybody to know and, and to, under, to understand that sometimes you just need to take a moment. I, I do that with pitchers all the time. And then Ken Revisa, great sports psychologist, used to tell pitchers all the time, don't shit on the rubber. You know, <laughs> when, you give a, when you give up a home run, you give up a hit, or your stuff's just not going, and you're starting to lose it, don't shit on the rubber. Develop your routine to, to walk it off and do things deliberately intentionally to be able to then put your energy and attention back where it needs to be so you can either just get out of that inning or you can get back on target where you need to be, right? Mm, that's really good stuff. So, I mean, I guess these are kind of the same steps that we would take when we come up against something we fear is knowing that, that you're afraid right now and then having right. coping mechanisms that you've already practiced and rehearsed so that you can, so you can operate under stress. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. You and I talk, uh, both share the idea about jumping out of an airplane, you know, and, <laughs> and it, it, and to me, like what you just say is what I say, name entertainment, right. You know, so I, I, for again, looking at the core competency of self-awareness. So I have to understand that first of all, that I have a, have a fear. And then how does that affect me? Again, that thought performance interaction, how does that affect me? What is, what is my perception about that fear that makes it a threat? For example, so if I was uh, afraid of heights and, uh, and I'm a paratrooper and I got to go jump out of airplanes, it's right. Okay, what is it about being at elevation at heights that gets me beyond that threshold of activation level to now I'm losing it, right? And then how does that affect me within that loop um, that I just talked about with thought performance interaction? If I can name it, then I can start to figure out how to tame it. But I think that the biggest thing, you know, again, everybody says face your fears. That's okay, well, how do I do that within the upper range, upper range, right? So when the activation gets left, how do I come back down, right? So you use the great example that I'll highlight of airborne school, right? And they don't always do this. They don't do this on purpose because logistically, administratively, it takes three weeks to train, you know, up to 300 paratroopers to jump out of an airplane. They've been doing it for 70 years now, right? But it start that stress inoculation happens over the course of time, right? So you have people jumping out of airplanes five times after three weeks who have a fear of heights. So how does that happen? Because jumping out of airplanes is, is an unnatural act. It just is. It just is. <laughs> humans were not humans were not designed to fly. Okay, let's just yeah. face it. So everybody has a, a physiological response, right? But again, the inoculation happens from the beginning, right? You start off by learning how to do a parachute landing fall by jumping off of a wall, you know, and then I roll on the ground and then I move up to apparatus that are kind of that are kind of small where I'm in a harness, and again, and I'm going getting the repetition and then I back off again. That by the time you get to your second week, you're doing tower week where you're some people, select people, you know, get dropped off of, you know, about a hundred foot tower and then go through it. So by the time you, you, again, you've had the work recovery of being, you know, getting comfortable, being uncomfortable with this idea of going at heights and exiting an aircraft safely and effectively. So by the time you're, you're in your fifth jump, okay, you're, you're ready to go and you're ready to do this the same way if you've done it five times or 50 times like me. 
But still, I will tell you that I still had, you know, even after my 50th jump, I still had the mental and emotional. It wasn't like my, you know, the the stress just went away because that just doesn't happen, right? Yeah. It just what what changed was my awareness and my control of myself to go through that same act because I, I had that I had that ability, yeah. So, like when you see, I think a great example was like the Super Bowl with Belichick and Pete Carroll. And I'm sure you saw the NFL films thing where they practiced this certain defense and they didn't know if it was going to come up. And he saw a situation. And I mean, it's like yeah. he's just like calmly walking. I'm sure there's stress. But 100%. he's like, he says, Flo, send in Malcolm. Flo is now the head coach at uh, the Dolphins. And he yeah. prepared for it. They knew what to do. Malcolm goes in. He recognizes, he jumps the route, gets the interception, and which yep. Rest is history. arguably yeah. was one of the dumbest moves in Seattle Seahawks <laughs> history when you have Marshawn you know, Lynch. Marshawn Lynch just hammering it. Just, just hand the damn, run the damn ball. <laughs> yes. Oh, gosh. Get the guy some Skittles. Yeah. But, you know, Pete Carroll had such a great response. He took out a lot of flag. I'm a huge Pete Carroll fan. I hate the Seahawks, by the way, because I'm a 49ers fan. Yeah. But I mean, I love Pete Carroll. And, and it's having gone to his practice, my friend Michael Gervais, uh, man, I saw in action, man. But, I, but yeah, to your, your, to your point, though, go ahead. No, I just, you just didn't see, like when they, they're filming the Patriots and, and the communications are, are, yeah. are calm. You know, when I've coached, you know, been on the opposite sideline, you just watch in-game interactions and they're not screaming at each other. Yeah. They're communicating. Yeah. In stressful situations. So there's still that fear, the unknown. I mean, you're in an unknown situation. Yeah. But they're not letting it get to them because they train in a way where they've learned to adapt. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think that's what's interesting about the economy between sports and even like in the military law enforcement is because the likelihood of something happening that you haven't seen before is a lot smaller. I mean, there is a little little variance of the unknown and that VUCA equation, but, uh, but that's what's interesting to me about that. That that would be being a big difference with tactical athletes is because the number of variables going from complicated to complex is what changes that. What changes, I think, you know. And so, I think talking to tactical athletes on the law enforcement side or in the military, it's like what happens is that hey, you know, are you gonna can you train for every single scenario that's gonna happen, right? You know, so the chance. What are the chances that you can actually train somebody jumping a route the same way that you can respond to? a situation that you're seeing all over the news where someone just behaving erratically, uh, you don't know if they're armed or not. Police has to make a decision about what to do, you know, knowing full well that, and and the pressure is on, man, it is a pressure cooker right now for cops, man. Um, They are damned if they do, damned if they don't in a lot of cases, right? You know, so what do you do? You've never seen this scenario before. So how do you train for that? Mm. And I think that's where my field comes in. So, you know, because when I can't control the situation, what I can always control is myself, right? And if I can control myself, I increase the likelihood that a optimal outcome will happen. It's not always going to happen that way. You know, I mean, you could be a freaking Buddhist monk who can meditate and make ice blankets, you know, uh, <laughs> steam, steam air. I mean, you know, you, you could be the Dalai, you could be the Dalai Lama and being this, the coolest cat in, in the world. But if the situation dictates that it's something is out of your control, the outcome may not be you know, in your favor, right? Wow. No, it's totally true. So talk, talk to us about now what you're doing at A&M. You're taking all this amazing experience in the military work you've done in the private sector with professional teams. And now you're at Texas A&M and you're yeah. pouring into the next generation of coaches, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, man. I, I'm like yourself. I mean, I'm a coach at heart. I, 
identify with being a coach and really being a coach of coaches. And I'm really, I really want to bring the art and science of coaching from a macro perspective, I think, to help professionalize coaching as a field in the United States. So really starting with the middle school and high school level. Professionalize is a key word. Professionalize, man. Right. No, you're right, man. Because it's, we're a little behind the UK and Australia. I mean, let's face it, you know this. I'm a competitive guy and, uh, you know, it's Patriots Day. So game on, man. Let's do, mm. let's, let's, t- let's train and educate our coaches who are working with the next generation of, of student athletes, and especially in urban centers and underprivileged areas like down in the Rio Grande Valley and places like Harlingen, man. They're in the fight every single day and they're undermanned, under-resourced. And at Texas A&M, what we're doing is we're helping train the next generation of coaches as, at the undergrad and graduate level. But more importantly, we're exporting this idea about holistic coaching from the inside out and this concept of being a coach for life, really starting with making coaches better with their mind, their body, their team, their character, and their craft. That holistic approach to coaching from the inside out and doing so in a way that adds value to them in, in little micro doses and that transferability of those skills that they can like, immediately turn around and, and help their athletes in real time with the limited time that they have you know, that, that is super, super important. And, um, and that's what we're trying to do at the coaching Academy. And, and we have a shortage of coaches all across America. We're losing, we're hemorrhaging coaches every single year. And when you think about the implications of the development of young people who are, you know, are not like you and I, and they're growing up in broken homes, you know, they don't necessarily have the father and mother figure that are available to them. So who, who is there to fill the void? A teacher coach. and a coach. And they're often, often the same people, right? And I think that, you know, there is no more noble cause than that right now. And in terms of serving, and to me, I think we're hedging our bets that veterans can help fill that gap. You know, so us, another, another nonprofit called Soldiers of Silence are the only higher education and nonprofit institution, respectively, that are actively going to be working to help veterans who've got this amazing coaching background, probably just don't know it, to help them get into and uh, back in their communities and serve through, through coaching. And, and then at the same time, you know, um, like, you know, professionalize coaching as both from the both art and science perspective. And I, and no better place than Texas A&M to do that. And I really think we're, we have the, the potential to be a leader in this space. And I'm just happy to be a part of it with Dr. John Thornton, who's the visionary who started Coach it and Thornton. everyone else. Yeah, the man. He was, he was there way before I was a student. And uh, I watched a video the other day uh, on the website and it was just really cool to see his face again. And yeah, A&M is a place that, you know, when you go back to John Earl Rutter, I mean, there's a reason that place has always exuded, has developed and put out leaders. And uh, it's pretty awesome that A&M has decided to pick up the torch on this thing. And uh, I'm excited that you're there to help, you know, lead the charge with them. And they're really lucky. They got somebody like yourself out there to be doing this. So uh, Andy, I, I appreciate your time today. I appreciate your heart for coaching. I appreciate what you're sharing. And we're definitely going to have to bring you back. Yeah, I'd love to be back, man. And uh, just one last shout out for you is that, hey, if your listeners, if you want to get better at, at what you do, like with some world-class performers, I mean, you got to plug into the blueprint. You got to hit subscribe <laughs> on your button. You got you to gotta listen and follow my man, Eric, because let me tell you what, guys, like this dude right here is on the cutting edge of human performance and making people and teams better at what they do. And I'm just uh, proud to know you and call you a friend now and, uh, and to be part of your tribe. Thank you so much. That was very kind of you. Well, uh, look forward to having you back and to talk some more about this stuff. And, to, and to, I think we should talk about professionalizing coaching a little bit. I think that'd be fantastic. Oh, dude, all day long. Let's do it. 
All right. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today for another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, would you please help us by providing a review simply by going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Also, if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Corum, Twitter at Eric Corum, Facebook at Eric Corum, and LinkedIn at Eric Corum.